Good afternoon and thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Sam Subramaniam, and today on the Business is Booming project, we welcome a very special guest, someone who left his home city of Adelaide at 18 on a ship to the United States with $300 in his pocket and returned in 2009, having been the CEO and founder of Canbay, a tech firm based in India. From its inception in 1989 to its IPO on the NASDAQ in 2004, eventually through to its acquisition by Capgemini for $1.25 billion in 2007. Since then, he has been involved in many corporations throughout South Australia, including being the chairman of South Australia's Economic Development Board, Samory, and Scotch College. He was inducted into the Chicago Area Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, received the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for the Illinois region, and in 2013 received an honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters from the University of Arizona. So welcome to the show, Dr. Raymond Spencer. Thank you, Sam. So how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Good. So you spent quite a few years working on village development projects in the United States and India. So what role has your experience in the not-for-profit sector had on your time in the for-profit sector? Well, that's a a really good question. And uh, obviously, as you said, I left uh, Adelaide after one year of law school and spent uh, what ended up being nearly 20 years in the nonprofit sector. The first uh, year was on the west side of Chicago in a uh, uh, all black area where the organization that I work with, the Institute of Cultural Affairs had a training center. And that was where I really learned their approach to a development. And then I went to, to India uh, quite by chance actually and uh, ended up uh, staying there for seven years and eventually building a network of uh, demonstration village development projects across the state of Maharashtra, 232 of them, one in each small region. They they called them talukas or counties, and others uh, across other parts of India, and had a network of about 10,000 volunteers, uh, some full-time, some uh, part-time. So... It was in that context that I I really learned my uh, managing skills, uh, if you like. And I think the first and the most important thing I learned was what we all know, which is people are not motivated by money. They're motivated by purpose. And uh, in the nonprofit world where uh, if you pay people at all, it's usually a very small amount, uh, that's... uh, particularly important to seize the energy that comes from uh, tapping into people's desire to to make a difference and to have a purpose in their life. And so uh, we would uh, employ a lot of different techniques, including uh, participatory processes so that everybody in the organization at one level or another was involved in uh, helping plan and uh, implement uh, what the organization was doing. We did a lot of work around creating a vision for the future and an excitement about what could be attained. Uh, And then we trained people with the specific skills to facilitate teamwork because, uh, again, I think successful organizations really operate as as teams and and, and diverse teams. And so my interest uh, some 20 years later when the opportunity came to found Canbay with uh, uh, two other people, was really trying to understand, could I apply the leadership 
approaches and methods that we had used in uh, the nonprofit world in a profit-making environment. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, if you like, uh, a piece of my thesis or the, uh, the, uh, one of the things that I was trying to uh, inquire about because I didn't have uh, outside formal business leadership training. I had the training that I had learned in 20 years of quite senior leadership eventually in the nonprofit world. And, you know, and the long and the short of it is that the, the key to the success of Canvay really was the very deep operationalized corporate culture that we had. And that was based on what I learned in 20 years. Yeah. Right. So going on to managing people, you talked about purpose, but how do you really incentivize people to do their best and to be proactive instead of reactive and essentially take initiative and pride in their work? Well, of course, that's, that's a, a very complex question. Mm-hmm. Um, so it starts, I think, by building a corporate culture in the organization. And uh, we had a set of seven values, which we put together over a relatively short order, the first two or three years. And those values, uh, you know, such as uh, we value respect for the individual or uh, another one was we value honesty, uh, integrity and open and caring communication. Uh, Another one was we valued uh, an entrepreneurial mentality that encouraged innovation and risk-taking. So these values formed the heart of our uh, building the, uh, the, the, the people uh, skills that drove the company. But if all you have is a set of values on the wall, then you, know, you don't have a lot. Uh, the key is operationalizing those. And, and so what we did in fact, you visit many organizations, they'll have values on the wall, but then you meet the organization and you quickly discover that the day-to-day behaviors of people are no way aligned to the values on the wall. And so we, for each value, we looked uh, at what were the key behaviors that demonstrated that value that would lead to the success of the individual. We called these the individual success factors. Uh, what were the behaviors that every individual could expect from the organization? And then what were the taboos, the things that we just did not tolerate? And everybody knew this. These, these were uh, work done. While we never changed the values, uh, my leadership team uh, would spend you know, a few hours every six months reassessing what the key behaviors were that we were looking for. And I suppose over the course of 20 years, maybe 30, 40% of those behaviors, because we had three individual behaviors for each value, three uh, behaviors you expect from the organization and three taboos. That, you know, 40, 30, 40% of them stayed the same the whole time. The others we would shift. And so, for example, uh, you know, a behavior uh, uh, in in terms of, uh, you know, open and honest communication uh, that you expected from an individual was speaking up in meetings, yeah. you know, no matter what your rank was. Uh, if you knew something, you know, you were expected to speak up. Uh, a behavior that would be that people could expect from the organization, uh, for example, was frank and timely feedback on performance yeah. uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, a taboo might well have been something like, you know, putting people down, mm. uh, things like that. So we had this set of uh, 
values that got translated into behaviors, and we rehearsed those continuously. But then we also built those values into the systems and processes, so our HR systems, our finance processes. Uh, so we put a lot of, you know, we. Uh, my feeling is that if you put a strong emphasis on organizational culture, which one of the attributes of which is empowering people, obviously, uh, what you're really doing is shifting accountability and responsibility to every individual mm -hmm. within the organization. Uh, and generally speaking, people rise to the occasion. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, involving them in this in the strategy and planning. And, you know, we use things like self-managed team processes and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So the organization, we, we and in our organization, the people who were closest to the customer were actually and youngest and mm -hmm. uh, uh, people because they were the people working on the programming. Yeah. Uh, and that's where a lot of our great insights came from. So so that was a really important, uh, important thing. Yeah. So you started Canbay in 1989. Mm -hmm. At the time, could you ever have envisioned the business becoming as successful as it became, obviously, with its taking it public on the NASDAQ and eventually its acquisition by Capgemini? No. Uh, I mean, clearly not. Yeah. Um, we, uh, I mean, yes, the end result, uh, sort of the last measure of success mm. is, yes, that we sold it for $1.25 US dollars. Oh, you know, one point seven Australian, mm. but you know that's a that's a lag measure. Mm. <laughs> we uh, we set out at first to create an organisation that was very value centric, and uh, as I as I described, uh, and put people at the heart of the organisation. Yeah, and you know we did that. And uh, we grew slowly, and we didn't have much money, uh, so we couldn't uh, um, grow quickly because we didn't have the funds to support it. So you know, it took us oh, eight, nine years to get to thirty million dollars of revenue. But uh, about, oh, I would say five or six years into the journey, we had a real reflection period and said, "Now, what do we want to be?" And we could have gone different ways. Uh, we could have become, for example, a small boutique organization that was interested in really being a lifestyle company and, you know, uh, spinning off profit. Because one of the things about growth is it eats all your profit. Mm. <laughs> and that was, uh, anyway, we, we had a long series of conversations and discussions and eventually decided that actually we wanted to create, and we, we coined a phrase, we wanted to create a globally elegant billion dollar uh, IT consulting firm. Yeah. That vi that aspiration, it wasn't really a vision, that's mm -hmm. an aspiration. That aspiration then shaped decisions we made along yeah. the way. So when you, if that's your aspiration, mm -hmm. then in the first instance, you don't care about profit. What you care about is cash flow. <laughs> yeah. And we were interested in reinvesting back into the business all the money we generated mm -hmm. so that we could grow. Yeah. Um, and then that also led us to in 1998, seeking our first formal round of capital, and we raised uh, $6 million into the company. And what that enabled us to do was to invest in methodology and processes and systems that we weren't able to invest in before. And although it diluted our ownership, mm. our rate of growth just really 
uh, escalated uh, and accelerated from there. And we had a, from that point, we had a, a five-year compound annual growth rate of over 75%, mm. which means every year you're doubling the number of people you're yeah. taking in. So when you're going from 300 to 600 a year, that's not so hard, or 600 to 1,200, but you start to add thousands. Yeah. That really, um, that really becomes uh, a challenge to your yeah. systems and processes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and we managed Touchwood to be able to do that uh, relatively successfully. Yeah. So what are the challenges that you face with going from being a private company to a public company, especially in the United States where the SEC requires you to mm. submit quarterly reports Yes, and you were judged off that performance, maybe restricting expenditure because you might want your balance sheet to look a certain way. So what were the challenges that came with that? Yeah, good question. And, and, and there were challenges. One of the things we did before going public because uh, we actually uh, had originally intended to go public in about uh, 2001, 2002. I just can't quite remember if it was one or two. Yeah. Um, and then uh, our growth was going along and, and the markets weren't great on the other side of uh, the dot-com crisis. Yeah. And so we, we, we didn't have to because we had, you know, we had enough capital. So uh, we didn't. But, but we always operated as if we were a public company. That was sort of our mantra. Yeah. So we practiced being a public company. Okay. We we practiced quarterly reports. Yeah. Uh, we practiced the disciplines. Now, being a public company in the U, and, and then of course you had all of the Sarbanes Oxley mm. new rules and regulations that came in after the dot com, after uh, uh, Enron and then the dot com crisis mm. and so on. So that had to be practiced, as it were. Mm. So when we became public, we'd had. You know, we'd had some uh, experience at operating as if we were public, but it's nothing like the real thing. Yeah. Um, and it's it is a very interesting balance because, firstly, quarters come around very quickly, uh, and as you know, if you miss a quarter, you get hurt. Yeah. And we did miss a quarter. Our stock, when we went public, went out at thirteen. Was it twenty six? About six months later, we did a secondary at that time. Uh, it hovered between 26 and 30. I don't remember what the highest it ever got, but in the 30s. And then uh, we did miss a quarter, uh, and uh, our stock went back to 13 for a while, and then we rebuilt it back up into the high 20s yeah. uh, and sold it for just below 30. Um, but one of the things that someone told me that I, I uh, really uh, valued was they said that just remember there are good companies and there are bad companies. There are good stocks and there are bad stocks. Sometimes a good company is a good stock. Sometimes a good company is a bad stock. Yeah. Sometimes a bad company is a good stock. Sometimes a bad company is a bad stock. What you want to do is run a good company yeah. and the stock will take care of itself. Yeah. And in essence, it did. Yeah. Uh, the reason we uh, took a hit on our earnings is we made the decision to expand into a couple of new areas. Yeah. Uh, Frank, one of them was uh, what's called business intelligence, that required investment. And uh, while we while we uh, let the market know that uh, in in the earnings call, uh, we had underestimated the size of the uh, investment we would need to make, and and, uh, and that of course hit our uh, bottom line earnings. I mean, we we, we were still uh, profitable, but it would you know it was just less than the yeah. the the, the uh, the, the target at the time. Um, 
But that was a very good decision because, and that's a really good example, actually, of putting trust in people. Uh, we had uh, we had a value of, as I said, of, uh, of valuing innovation and risk taking, and and so when people would come with ideas, I would encourage them to map them out, and if we, you know, if they didn't were committed to them, we'd often set up little uh, teams to go try and implement them. On, on the theory of if you're going to fail, fail fast, yeah. and no one got penalized for failing. In fact, if you want to be entrepreneurial, you've got to expect people to fail. Mm. Um, and this particular case, a 23-year-old guy came and s- talked about the opportunities that existed in business intelligence. We put a little team around him uh, of some more experienced people. Interestingly, two years later after this hit, that was a $100 million business unit for us. It went from zero to $100 million in two years. So that hit paid for itself yeah. <laughs> many times yeah. over uh, in our stock. So, yeah. So touching on failure, mm. obviously an inherent part of being an entrepreneur is making mistakes. How mm. have you dealt with those mistakes and maybe used them as leverage to push yourself towards those aspirations? Yes. Well, I mean, I guess the first point is you've got to be willing to Say you fail, you know, that it's not working. Yeah. And uh, probably if I had a one of the faults uh, I would say of my own leadership style is I give people probably second and third chances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually you got to, you know, because I, I think sometimes you know that you, you look, I mean, people learn and can learn from their mistakes. Yeah. Um, but you first got to acknowledge that it's a mistake. But then focus not on, the mis- you know that the, the, there is a mistake, but focus on what can we learn about that. Learn not only in the particular, but in the general. So learn not only about the specific thing that that uh, the, the uh, quote unquote mistake happened, but what are some more fundamental learnings about the way we do things, or our processes, or the systems we need, or our training programs, or whatever that we can implement across the board across the organization because. If you've got really bright people, which we had, we you, you couldn't, you know, in a technology business, writing the kind of uh, advanced software that we were writing, by definition, everybody was a really bright person. Mm. Um, and you want to, you, 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 and therefore creating a learning organization mm. was really important. And it's not just the successes, but it's the mistakes that add to the richness of your learning. And so it's a matter of acknowledging it, reflecting on it, uh, figuring out what the learnings were, and then implementing those learnings yeah. and, and building that into the, the, the day-to-day life of the company. Yeah. What's that saying? Mountains inspire leaders and valleys mature them. Yeah, that's very true. And we all have valleys. Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of business investments in the mo- at the moment that are in valleys. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that I've been in valleys in the past yeah. helps me. In the future, a recognize that we're in a valley, yeah, <laughs> and b figure out helps me figure out how to get out of that valley yeah, for sure. So, with years of business and entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial uh, experience under your belt, you co-founded RSVP Ventures in two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the biggest challenges that come with such a risky investment in ventures? Uh, well, uh, yes, it is. Uh, you know, there is a risk in, in venture funding for sure. Um, the biggest challenge, it and and sometimes we've done this well, and sometimes we've done it poorly, is not falling in love with the technology, 
but really being hard-headed around is the technology or is the business idea, because not mm. all of our investments are technologies, we've yeah. got various things, but is the business idea one that can be commercialized? Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of great technologies and business ideas out there that, are never, that aren't really commercializable. Mm. So how do you know that? Well, we kind of ask a, you know, a, a, a series of, of, of questions. Uh, the, the first is pretty straightforward, which is, does this, uh, uh, you know, product or solution solve uh, a, a real problem yeah. for which real people will pay real money? Uh, because there are many great ideas out there yeah, sure. <laughs> that aren't going to be picked up on and, and you can fall in love with the idea, but, you know, but who's going to buy it? The next thing we look for is, you know, does the organization uh, have a clear articulation of its strategic vision for this business? Yeah. And is that aligned with with what we see and is it aligned with an investor? Because sometimes a founder can want to do things that are fine for the founder, but they're not going to support the return of an investor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you've got to have, uh, you, you've got to have alignment around that. The third question we ask is, is the business scalable? Because if you're investing, it's got to grow mm. by definition. So we don't invest in any business that we don't see a model to getting 10 times our return. Yeah. Now, do we always get 10 times our return? No. Mm. In fact, you rarely get time to, 10 yeah. times your return. But if you can't see how to get 10 times your return, you're, you're probably not going to get a, a return that, uh, uh, that that is worthy of the investment. Right. And then, of course, it's all about the leadership. And so we really look hard at, you know, does the leadership, you know, know what to measure? Do they produce management dashboards that tell them how they're performing? You know, uh, are they team, you know, are they team players? Yeah. And that then leads me to the fifth, which is, you know, does the business have the appropriate culture, leadership style and talent to be successful? Okay. Um, and, you know, our theory is we'll invest in businesses that have got 80% of the talent mm. uh, if they've got the right attitudes, the right openness, uh, 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 the willingness to be trained and so on, because yeah. you can learn that along the way. Yeah. But if you think you know all the answers uh, mm. and if you're already the expert, then you're unlikely to learn much and therefore you're probably going to fail. Yeah, interesting. I find it quite interesting myself. Um, the notion that you can actually contribute a lot to society through the for-profit sector as well. Mm, I mean, with venture capital, you're yeah. giving these, young, I guess, young people these with ideas, the real means as to which to achieve their goals and essentially create a better better economy. Yeah, and good venture capital is, is a lot more than the capital. Mm, I mean, we don't, we don't invest in businesses unless we also generally have a seat on the board. Yeah. Uh, we you know, help them with their, you know, the frameworks and mm. systems and processes, uh, you know, uh, lots of other things, you know, mm. sales, whatever, relationships. I mean, we're, we're involved in the business. I mean, yeah. venture by definition is not, is quite different from private equity mm. and uh, very much is a collaboration with management. The yeah. investor and the managers, the leaders, the, te the team mm. are all one team yeah. trying to build a company and we all have a common interest yeah. and the minute that common interest dissipates you're going to have mm. failure probably so that um activism do you think that removes some of the risk in taking 
in making such an investment. Yeah, it does to, sometimes. It also can be a problem, though, in that if you fall in love with the company, yeah. if you fall in love with the CEO, for example, yeah. uh, and don't make the hard decisions to make the changes, then you know, then that can be a problem, and yeah. I've certainly been guilty of that. Mm. So, uh, you know, you learn. And, hey, if I knew today... If I knew 10 years ago, I'm sorry, what I know today in this area, I'd have done some many things differently. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's life, right? Mm, and, uh, yeah. All right. So to finish off today, if you could narrow down uh, your business success and attribute it to perhaps one thing, what would it be? Oh, uh, the importance of honoring people and the importance of putting people at the heart of everything you do. Yeah. I mean, business is finally nothing other than people. Mm-hmm. And every business, whether it's a high-tech company you know, or a large mass uh, employer-type company, it's about the people. Yeah. And, um, and that's why culture is so important. I mean, for me, organizational culture is the most important thing that a business builds because if you build the right culture, the other things – uh, will take care of themselves, you know, the getting the right people in place, getting the right skills, mm-hmm. diversity. I mean, one of the huge things I look for is the willingness of leaders in businesses to hire people who are better themselves mm-hmm. and also hire people who are very different from themselves, that if they just want to hire mini-me's mm-hmm. and if they just want to hire people who are going to say, yes, I don't want to work with them yeah. because great decisions get made by the, the interactions that happen with unholy coalitions of thought. Mm. And uh, and that's really, really important for success. Right. I mean, that, that for me is what it's all about. Mm. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Spencer. Well, thank you, Sam. And folks, remember, stay tuned and your business will boom. Thanks for tuning in.